You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. What's the worst camping experience that you've ever had? I love camping. My family grew up camping. We went every year and I've camped almost in every single state in Australia apart from uh, WA and Tasmania. Uh, And if you don't love camping, that's okay. The Lord is rich in mercy and faithful to forgive all of our transgressions. Uh, But camping for me is just one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. But I've also had some pretty tough experiences. I remember in 2018, it had been a particularly hard year for us, uh, and it was a really busy season of ministry, and I thought, you know what I need? I need to get away for a little bit. And so I talked with Sarah, organized some time off, and said, hey, I'm going to go away, just disconnect from the world, reconnect with, with God, and just spend some time in creation. And so I decided to go down to one of my favorite spots in the world, Wye River. Wye River is in between Lawn and Apollo Bay, and it is, it is stunning. It is beautiful. It is um, such a blessing to my, my heart. Uh, and one of the best things about it is that there is only one spot about a kilometer out of town where you can actually get mobile reception, where your phone will work. Uh, some of you are having anxiety attacks at the thought of that. For me, that is soul restoring, being disconnected from the phone. But as I was preparing to go down to Wye River, uh, I checked over my tent, which is something you should always do. Uh, My parents had borrowed the tent and discovered that the central pole had snapped. Uh, Well, this isn't a good start. That's okay. I uh, I called up Dave and Ali, uh, who also love camping, and thought, hey, guys, you love camping. Can I just borrow one of your tents for a couple of days? No worries. That was my first mistake. Uh, It is a universal law of camping. If you borrow someone's tent, that you will not know how to use it. And secondly, you will definitely break it. Anyway, continue forward. Headed down to Wye River. And uh, I know the forecast had said it was going to be a bit rainy, uh, maybe a bit windy, uh, maybe a bit bit cold. But, you know, I'm I'm pretty tough. It's fine. So driving down, I thought, hey, at a stop. Um, I'll just check bombs, see what's going on today. Maybe the weather's changed. Uh... Logged on to bomb and was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, apparently there's going to be 40 millimetres of rain and 90 kilometre winds. Well, that's a bit of a change, isn't it? I thought, well, you know what I should do? I'm just going to put the tent up really, really good. I'm just going to put the tent up better than anyone has ever done it in the history of putting tents up. Uh, and so I did that, got there, put the tent up. Everything was looking schmick. Uh, all the lines were up. Great. Uh, went to bed. Woke up at about 3 a.m. completely drenched, soaked. And uh, what, I, what had happened was that the rain had beat down so mercilessly and the wind was so strong that the tent had caved in on itself. I think I have a video showing uh, of evidence and you might look at this and go, well, this isn't too bad until you realize this is a three or four person tent and there's meant to be a left and right hand side and I'm on the left hand side and the right hand side has disappeared. There is no right hand side of the tent anymore. It is completely caved in. The tent is soaked. I'm soaked. And uh, I think I... I had to rescue all my valuable possessions and sleep in the car that night, but I learned a valuable lesson. You can always buy a better tent. No, that's not, that's not the lesson I learned. Tents are flimsy. They're easily broken. That they're good, but they're not designed for storms. 
And Paul is about to say the same thing to us today, that our bodies are sort of like tents. Now, I want to encourage you, as we look into our text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's going to be a bit strange. There's a lot going on. And so I want to encourage you, have your Bibles in front of you. You are going to be blessed and strengthened if you have the text right in front of you rather than waiting for it to come onto your screen. Uh, And just to have in mind, Paul's big message is to keep looking ahead. Keep your eyes focused this morning. And I want to encourage you to do that, even as there's these juicy topics he's going to bring up. Don't, Don't get sidetracked into these rabbit holes or following wherever your thoughts go. Just keep on track, keep your eyes focused, and I think we're going to come to a really helpful place this morning. But let's continue on from where we did last week. Jono preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, one of, I think, the most encouraging sections of Scripture that we have. That we have the treasure of the gospel, God himself, in our jars of clay. That even though our bodies are brutal, we have a treasure. That there are these light and momentary afflictions. That even though we are hard-pressed, we will not be consumed. But that we need to look forward to what is eternal. Not to what is seen, but is unseen. And Paul picks up that line of thought into and, and drives it home to us. And what I think is ultimately a very helpful section of Scripture. Overlooked, very helpful. So let's pick it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, looking at verse 1 right now. Paul starts off by saying this. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. Now, this is, a, this is a hometown metaphor for Paul. He is a tent maker by trade. And so he would have known that tents are great. He would have loved tents. He would have been a, a camping man, I can imagine. But he also knows that tents are great for campings, but they're not great for storms. He knows that tents are easily broken. And so he starts to compare our bodies to tents. He says, yes, tents are great, but they are not permanent. They are not secure. Storms come and wash them away. They cave in on themselves and our bodies are similar. Our bodies are beautiful and a gift from God, but they do not last forever. They break down. They get sick. They wear down and eventually we die. Paul knows. What we all know is that these bodies are sort of like tents. They're easily broken. But as we read this, we might go, well, what hope do we have? What hope do we have if our earthly tent, our bodies, are easily torn down? What hope do we have if these are jar clays, as Paul uses in in 2 Corinthians 4? Well, we have the hope that he talked about at the end of chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory, so we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul's encouraging us, keep your eyes on eternity. Keep your eyes on the end. We live in a culture where we don't talk about Death. Death is a taboo subject. It is uncomfortable for us to talk about death. And so it often means that we don't end up dying well or we think about death far too late. 
to die well. I remember my, my grandfather died a couple of years back now and I took his funeral. And I just, I just remember the lengths that people went to to ignore and mask the fact that he had died. Uh, he's gone on to a better place. He's passed on to the next world. Heaven has got an angel. All these ways of turning around and just ignoring the fact that he has died. His body has given up. We, they didn't want to say those words. And it really struck me a couple of weeks ago when we had an all-in Zoom church session together. And after Jono had preached and we discussed the topic, Nolene turned around, our dear Nolene, and said, Jono, I want you to preach that at my funeral. And it stuck in my head because there was such awkward silence. Such awkward silence. People didn't know what to do with themselves. With Nolene said, hey, I, I know I'm going to die. I know there's going to be a funeral. I want you to preach this. There was only one person in that conversation ready for eternity. I really love what uh, Catherine Sleeman says. She's a palliative care registrar. And she says this. We prepare about the arrival of a new baby. We plan for it. We think about what we're going to buy and what we're going to call the new baby. It is part of our daily life, our conversation. Why do we not prepare for our death in the same way? I would like everyone to have a good death, but we can't achieve that unless we as a society stop whispering and start talking about it. Christians of all people should be able to talk about what comes next. The fact that our bodies are brittle, they're easily broken. Even the best of us only has 100 years. And so we look forward. We look to what God has for us. What Paul says, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. This is a way of saying not, not built by any human, but made by God himself. And is Paul saying, well, we're going to get a nice mansion in the sky when we die? Well, no. He's using this analogy of buildings as bodies to describe the differences between what we have now and what we will have in the future. He's saying that in this life, our bodies are sort of like a tent, broken, easily swayed to and fro by even the gentlest wind. But in the future, we will have an eternal body, secure, just secure in the ultimate sense, untouched by sin. And we look forward to that. We look forward to it. And he continues on in verses 2 to 5. Indeed, we groan in this tent, in this body, designed to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan whilst we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as down payment. What Paul starts to do is mash metaphors together. He wants to continue on describing our, our bodies as buildings, but he starts introducing this thought of nakedness and clothedness to describe what awaits us in eternity. 
Now it's important that he does this because he's speaking to Corinth. Corinth is a town in Greece. It had Greek people there, Greek scholars. And particularly Greek scholars are important because they had this idea that the body was something that needed to be shed by the soul. That when you died, the body was shed off like a snake sheds its skin and that all that was left there was the soul, sort of like a body snake kind of idea. That, that image won't leave your mind very quickly, I imagine. Body snakes. And Paul wanted to say, hey, no, 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 I disagree. You have this idea that the body is bad and the spiritual is good. And Paul wants to say, no, 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 the body is good. It is a gift from God. We have a body now and we have a body in eternity. But he introduces this language of nakedness. So why does he do that? Why does he talk about our bodies ever being naked? When we die, won't we just have bodies in, in heaven? Is, is that what's going on? Well, I think he's introducing something a little bit complex, but just stay with me for a moment. I think what he's saying is this, that in this life we will have earthly, tently bodies. And in the future, in the eternity, in the resurrection, we will have resurrection bodies that are unstained by sin and secure, being with God forever. But I think what he's saying is there is an intermediate state, a middle ground between now what we experience our tently bodies and what we'll experience on the day of the resurrection, when we'll receive our resurrection bodies. Now, I, th- I think there's good reason for this. In verse 8, he says, We are confident and we prepare, prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He talks about a time when we're going to be away from our bodies, that our body and soul is going to be separated for a time, but we're going to be with the Lord. Philippians uh, 1 and 2 talk about this as well, that Paul wants to depart and be with the Lord. What I think is going on is Paul is talking about this state where we have not yet received our resurrection bodies unstained by sin, but we are with Jesus, awaiting those bodies. And I think that's why he uses this language of clothing and nakedness. He says uh, in in verse uh, verse 2, We groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, this clothing analogy, since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan whilst we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Another way of saying what he's saying is that we look forward to when we can put on our resurrection bodies, our resurrection buildings, so to speak, because we'll be almost be overclothed in comparison to what we have now. It is going to be so much better that we groan for this. Just, just think of my a terrible, tenting experience, sleeping uh, in just wet and just just terrible smelling clothes is what happens if you sleep in wet clothes. It just smells real bad. Just imagine that. Imagine the thought entering my head. There's a cabin. There's a cabin just around the corner. I need to be in that cabin. I want to be in that cabin. If I was thinking about the cabin surrounded in a wet collapsing tent, I'll be groaning. I just want to be in the cabin. And Paul is saying the same kind of thing with us in these bodies. Whether we're here on earth in these 
contently bodies, these easily broken bodies, or we're in spirit with the Lord, we groan with anticipation at being clothed in resurrection bodies, unstained by sin. Man, do you know how good that's going to be? Can you just imagine for a moment being completely unstained by sin, no brokenness, no feebleness, our bodies completely able to do everything they were designed to do? Like that, that thought just encourages me so much. Like I've experienced so much sickness and brokenness. I can't wait to receive a body that will never know brokenness again. Never no brokenness again. And what Paul is getting at is that this home is not our true home. This body is not our true body. We look forward to the resurrection body that we will receive. We keep our eyes focused forwards. And what are the results of this? Well, he continues in verse 6 and 8. So... We are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And in fact, we are confident and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Did you pick up the word that he repeats a couple of times? Therefore, we are confident. If we have resurrection bodies awaiting us, if we have time with the Lord awaiting us, what's the worst thing that can happen to us? Death? That's the worst thing that can happen to us. Being in eternity with Jesus, receiving resurrection bodies, unstained by sin. What can you do to me? Paul is saying, I have such great confidence. We are always confident. Now, being with Jesus is far better. We groan, we long for that. We groan for our resurrection bodies. But we walk in confidence. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now we live in the reality of our world that is broken and brittle itself. We live in a world that wants us to look by sight and not by faith. Satan would love nothing more than for us to live by sight and not by faith. Not looking ahead to what God has promised. Not looking ahead to what God has secured. Not looking ahead to what Jesus has won for us. But looking to what is, looking to the brokenness, looking to the sickness, looking to the pandemic, looking to our government, looking to everything else that is so broken around us. He wants to whisper in our head, you know that, you know that sin that you've been fighting? You're never going to win. Just, just give up. You know that relationship that you've been trying to make peace? Just give up. You know that church? Too difficult. Toxic people. You don't need any of that. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Things might seem broken now, but they will not be broken in eternity. Things might seem overwhelming now, but they will not be overwhelming in eternity. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Don't be distracted. Don't let your eyes fall. The reason we are so discouraged is often because we are not looking at Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to him, we look to what is we look not to what is seen but what is unseen. We walk by faith, not by sight. Christian, keep your eyes on the future. Keep your eyes on the promises of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
keep them on him. And Paul continues in verse 9 and 10. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's helpful having some local geography in mind when we talk about this. Corinth uh, was a bustling, a hustling and bustling city in, in Greece. And if you visited, one of the places that you would visit is the Forum, where there would be uh, stalls and markets and public buildings. And at the, the biggest public building would be the government office. And at the center of the government office would be the judgment seat, what uh, the New Testament and what Greek people at the time would have called the, the Bema, the judgment seat. And Paul would have been pretty acquainted with this because in Acts 18, he actually comes before the beamer, before the judgment seat in Corinth to give an account of his activity, what he's been up to. And I think uh, for us, we, we have a, a kind of strange idea of justice in comparison to the ancient world because our justice is quite private. The only courtroom I've ever seen the inside of is the courtroom that appears at 1pm on daytime TV when Judge Judy comes on, right? When you're homesick from school and you're just really bored and so you put on something and Judge Judy's there. That's the only courtroom I've ever seen the inside of. But back then, it would have been incredibly public before everyone, anyone could come to the judgment seat and witness what was going on, witness justice. It's why uh, N.T. Wright, who's who's an incredible uh, New Testament scholar, he says this, talking about the judgment that's, uh, that's happening. He says, this is one of the clearest statements of the last judgment in Paul's writing, and indeed anywhere in the New Testament. You might hear that and read what Paul is saying and start to notice there's a little tension here. Paul says in verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here's the tension. We are a church that loves the gospel. We are a church that loves the idea that we are saved by grace through faith. That when you believe in the Lord Jesus, that his life and his death and his resurrection to forgive your sins, you are forgiven Indeed. So what's going on with Paul saying that we're going to be repaid for what we have done in the body, good or evil? What's he getting at here? Why is there going to be a future judgment where we will brought before the beamer of Jesus, led up the road to the center of the town and be taken before the beamer of Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ? What's going on? Well, we have to wrestle with this. Because the New Testament wrestles with this constantly. There is verse after verse that speaks of a future judgment according to works. Let me just read out a couple of verses for you. In Romans 2, 6-11, Paul says that good works are required for eternal life, and those who do evil works will face God's wrath. In Revelation 20, Revelation 20 God will assess people according to their works at the great white throne of judgment. In Galatians 5.21, those who practice the works of the flesh will not enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 6.9, we are told that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
In Colossians 3, 24, those who do good will receive the inheritance, and that inheritance is Paul's way of talking about eternal life. And in Galatians 6, verse 8, we are told that those who sow to the Spirit will obtain eternal life, but those who sow to the flesh will be destroyed and corrupted. Now maybe, maybe your head is spinning right now. Maybe you feel like you've been tricked, that we've talked about grace and grace and grace. We've talked about mercy and forgiveness, and now there's going to be a judgment of works. What's going on? Have I been lied to? No. No, not at all. Yes, there will be a judgment of works going on here. That is important for us to wrap our head around. I think what's going on is that just because we are saved by grace through faith does not mean that the way we live our lives doesn't matter. In fact, the opposite. Because we are saved, the way that we live matters more. Because we have the Spirit of God, it matters more. We are to display the fruits of the Spirit. And the Bible is very clear on this, that we will be repaid according to our works. Like I'm just thinking again in Romans 2, just reading that out, 2 verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth whilst obeying unrighteousness. How do we, how do we work that out? What's going on here? What I think is the Bible is very clear that we cannot earn our salvation. You cannot do enough good works to earn salvation from God. But what good works do is show that we have been saved. That what God does is look upon the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, the way we live our lives before men, as evidence of our salvation and transformation. That they are the corroborating evidence of a life filled with the Spirit, so that when we come before Him, our salvation and works match up. John Calvin famously said, We are not saved by works, but neither are we saved without them. We need works because they are evidence of a life transformed by the Spirit, of a life saved by grace. And you might be freaking out right now, going, Oh dear, I've got a lot of work to do. Well, maybe. But remember verse 5. That's why we've got to read Scripture in its entirety, in its totality of what it's saying. Verse 5, Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. God has given us, His people, the Holy Spirit to enable us to become like Him, to walk in His ways and His words and His works so that there would be no discord between our salvation, our identity status as people in Jesus, in whom there is no condemnation, and the way that we live our lives. I think what Paul is trying to get at, he's not looking forward to the future and worrying about condemnation. He knows there is none in Jesus, but he is looking forward to how the Lord will evaluate the way that he has used his time on earth. He is looking forward to a commendation for how the fruits of the Spirit has been worked out in Paul's life. He's not worried about commendation. He's not worried about uh, condemnation, rather. He's worried about being able to use his time and his talents to serve 
the Lord. Paul knows that he's an apostle. He knows that he will come before the Lord and give an account of how he has used his time, his talents, his ways, his words, his works. And he wants to make sure he's used every single muscle, every single minute to serve the Lord. It says in verse 9, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. We look forward to be reminded that one day we're going to come before Jesus and we want to be pleasing to him. We don't want to be caught out. And that's going to be the case for all of us. We are going to come before the Lord and whatever our ministry is, we might not be an apostle like Paul, but we all have ministries. We all have time and talents. We all have ways and works that God wants us to walk in. Have we been faithful? Have we got on board? Have we used the most of our opportunities? Have we been faithful to what God has called us to? What do you think? We are not saved for just mindlessness, aimlessness. We are saved for service that is pleasing to God. We have been given an extraordinary purpose, an extraordinary mission And Paul wants us to keep our eyes on the future judgment of God so that we don't get distracted from the main thing. It is so easy to become distracted. Paul says, don't. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the judgment. Not because of condemnation, but because we want to live lives that are pleasing to God. We want to live lives that God is pleased with, that when we come before him, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So how about you? Are you feeling distracted at the moment? Are you feeling diverted away from the main thing? Has the purposes of God left your mind? Well, that's okay. This is the perfect opportunity to reacquaint yourself with them and renew your devotion to God. God is rich in mercy, full of forgiveness, But we can't let this slide. We don't want to let grace quash the clear commandments of God either. And so we walk forward, looking at Jesus, firm in the foundation that these bodies are brittle, but we have heavenly bodies, resurrection bodies awaiting us, that we are saved by grace through faith, and that God calls us to be pleasing to him. This passage has just been encouraging to me. It has got me fired up. There's lots of tricky things in it. But let's look forward to Jesus. Let's look forward to him who saved us, who secured us, who we will walk before the judgment seat of. But let us pray that we will be pleasing to him. Let me pray for us. God, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for the life of Paul. We thank you for his Uh, attempts to balance uh, salvation by grace through faith and the life lived pleasing to God. God, we pray that as we work, that as we are transformed by the Spirit, that we might be pleasing to you, that we wouldn't be distracted by this world, but rather keep our eyes on you, that we wouldn't be discouraged by our brittle and broken bodies, but rather groan in anticipation of what lies ahead. God, keep us centred and focused on you. Whether we've been doing it for many, many years or this is the first time, God, draw us to yourself, centre us on you 
and keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray this in your name. Amen.